All right, all right. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Hey, can we thank our worship team? Aren't they amazing? Just so grateful. You guys, love you guys. Well, uh, January 8th, you're doing good if you're here because you set a New Year's resolution of coming to church a little more often. Congratulations. Give yourself a pat on the back. You're here. Good job. Um, no, I'm so excited to, uh, to be with you and to see you and excited for uh, the next few moments that we'll have together. I have a question for you. What would cause you to get to the end of 2023 and to look back on this year and to go, man, I have no regrets. I have zero regrets about this year. Is that even possible, right? It seems a little bit like a, like, I don't even know that that's a real thing. I think for me, you just kind of embrace that I'm going to have regrets. Really, I just want to manage the size of my regrets, right? Like, I, I just don't want to have too big of regrets. I'm okay with little regrets, but not too big of regrets, right? But I know you've got some, uh, some big goals, maybe some big things that you're hoping to accomplish this year, some uh, relationships that you want to invest into more, maybe some um, different habits that you want to see formed in your life, some, dip, some big things that you hope to accomplish over the next 12 months. You've got your fitness goals. You've got your family goals. You've got your financial goals. You've got your self-improvement goals. And hopefully, maybe you've got somewhere in there some spiritual goals, some things that you would like to see the Lord do in your life. And if you're like me, this isn't your first rodeo with New Year's resolutions, so you probably know that resolutions and goals require more than just good intentions, right? At some point, they actually almost overtake your whole life. It, you have to implement new practices, new rhythms, new disciplines. You really have to kind of go all in with these. You have to almost like sell out to this thing that you're hoping to accomplish. And so as we got together as a team, we talked about where we want to go for the month of January, we just started thinking, is there anything that you could kind of sell out to this year that you would look back and we can be confident that you will not have any regrets as it pertains to that, that you will not regret giving your life to this or, or leaning into this area of your life more. There's no chance that you'll regret it. You're in church, so you probably know the answer is, of course, you can sell out to Jesus, right? Give your life to Jesus and go all in with that. And we promise you, you will not have any regrets for that. But I think it, we can get a little bit more specific. And so as we talked about it, it was kind of cool because the things that we were talking through actually landed on really four of what we call our cultures here at our church. Well, the four cultures of our church, which you'll see, uh, they're not up there, but they're serving, community, generosity, and evangelism. And we really believe just as people in a, as a part of our church, if we'll lean into these four things, what we would see God do and transform in our lives would be massive. And so I want to spend some time this morning just talking about the culture of serving and what it looks like to be a servant or to really embrace a posture, a heart that leans toward um, servanthood. That we want to be people who intentionally look for ways to serve others. As I read this book, and specifically the New Testament, there's a consistent theme without it, or, or throughout it, that points back to this desire for Jesus to form in us a posture, a heart, lean towards servanthood. I look at Mark chapter 9, and it says, And he sat down, Jesus sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last and a servant of all. In 1 Peter chapter 4, it says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another 
as good stewards of God's varied grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So it's pretty clear in Scripture, but it just makes me ask the question, why? Why is serving or servanthood such a core identity of a Christian? Why is Jesus so set on making his disciples people who have servant hearts? And I think about this church specifically. Many of you exhibit what it means to be a servant. In fact, you're, you're really like a, a role model for me as I watch you. You serve people. You serve our church. You serve the Lord better than anyone I've ever seen. You're a model for me of what it looks like to be a servant. Many of you in our church, you have seen and felt the impact of when someone serves you. You know what that does for you. you, you in fact, I was thinking about just a few weeks ago, um, our son, Kyler, he's three. He had some outpatient surgery. Not a huge deal, but it was surgery for a three-year-old. It's kind of a big deal for us. And we had a family from our church just bring us a meal that night. Now, it wasn't like making a meal was going to crush our lives. But I think what they were just trying to do is say, hey, we want to serve you. And it made a big difference for me and my wife just to have, and really, if anything, just to know that our church cares about us to that extent, to serve us like that. So you know what it feels like to be served by people. You know the impact that it can have on your life. So what is it at the core of serving that Jesus and the writers of the New Testament specifically are so passionate about? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons, but I want to highlight really just one this morning that can help us kind of get our minds around what it means to be a servant and why it's so important to us. So turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 is what I want to read from this morning. And um, as you're doing that, I'll tell you a little bit of a story. I feel like every time I'm up here, I talk about my kids. And so maybe you're tired of that. I'm sorry. Uh, but it's just kind of the dominant thing in my life right now, in our life right now. We have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, Cade and Kyler. And so if you have kids that age, you know kind of the dynamics of trying to figure out parenting and the things that we want to teach them, the things that really matter, the things that we want to lean into, and, and hopefully they catch. And you know the struggle of feeling like they're not catching what you're teaching them, right? You know this? Um, so just recently, a few days ago, I uh, was sitting in my living room. We have like a little playroom off to the side. And so both my boys were in the playroom and they were talking and I could hear some things were escalating. I could hear that they were getting aggravated with each other. And like any good dad, what did I do? I said, ah, they'll figure it out, right? <laughs> they'll work through this. They need to work through this. So I just kind of let them be. And they, you know, things just started escalating a little bit. I could hear their tone of voice was getting a little bit more intense until finally our three-year-old Kyler just lets out a blood-curling scream. And so at that point, I did what any good dad do, right? I said, okay, maybe it's time now that I go in there. So I, I walk into the room, and immediately I hear this back and forth. He hit me. Well, he hit me first. Well, he stole my toy. Well, he stole my toy first. Well, he colored this. Well, he it was just this like back and forth kind of thing. So I don't know if you've ever had this as a parent, but I had this kind of revelation moment where something came to me and I thought, oh, I'm going to teach them something here. And this is going to be revolutionary for their life. I mean, this could crack the code and them becoming the all-star kids that I think they're made to be, right? Kidding. But I thought that. I had this moment. So I said, okay, boys, get down. I get down on their level. I said, look me in the eyes. I want to teach you something now. I said, just because someone does something to you 
doesn't mean you can do it back to them. That's a good lesson to teach, right? And then I went a little bit further. This was the revolutionary moment. I said, it's called reciprocation. Now, at that point, I realized that I had lost them, okay? I thought maybe that was too big of a word, but who knows? Maybe they'll be super academic and they can get it. So I said, are you guys, do you hear me? Reciprocation. And then I just doubled down on it. I'm like, well, I'm in it. Might as well go for it. I said, can you repeat reciprocation? And they're just looking like straight through me like, they can't say the word reciprocation. Of course they can't. They're six and they're three, right? They can't say it. And I'm like, reciprocation, sons. Get it, reciprocation. And then finally I just bail on it. I go, you know what? Just don't hit your brother again, okay? Just don't do it. And I bailed on reciprocation. Maybe we'll return to that when they're four and seven. But the good news is this morning, I want to talk about reciprocation a little bit. And I'm hoping that you can understand this term reciprocation a little bit better than my six-year-old. So let's read in James chapter 2, and then we'll get back to that. James chapter 2, verse 1, says this. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or even sit on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the law, the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So the sin of favoritism is clearly a big deal. And so I want to just highlight two things out of this passage that I think maybe is a little roundabout way, but I really think there's something in here to learn from as it pertains to servanthood. So the first thing is this. Favoritism forces you to ascribe value to people based on outward appearance or even cultural standards. It forces you to ascribe value to people based on outward appearance or even cultural standards. So this man in this story has to make a judgment decision about who is worthy of his seat and who deserves to sit at the floor. So what does he do? He sizes them up. He says, okay, I got one guy over here who's dressed in the fanciest new suit and a Rolex. He's looking good. I got this other guy over here who looks like probably hasn't been shopping in a while, maybe not even showered in a while. And he makes a decision about who gets his seat. He has to come to the conclusion that their outward appearance is what gives them value. And you know this, that that is not the case in the kingdom of God. I don't know if you're new to church maybe, but you need to know this morning that that is the opposite of what the kingdom of God is like. In fact, Scripture says in Matthew chapter 7, Judge not that you may not be judged. In John chapter 7 says, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. In 1 Samuel, the story of David, it says, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so James is saying there's more than just what's on the surface level. 
There's more to it. He's saying there's more to somebody than the wealth that they have gained. So don't give value to someone and thus honor someone, especially at the expense of someone else, simply because they have money. But this is not just a warning about the dangers of economic discrimination or materialistic judgmentalism. I think it goes much deeper than that. In fact, I, I think about my own life. Um, it often seems like what Jesus is wanting to do in me is like a surgeon at my heart where he's just cutting me open and he's revealing my motives behind things. What are my motives behind things? And so James doesn't actually tell us the motive of this guy here and why he chooses or why he would choose the rich man over the poor man. But I'd like to just invite you to maybe put yourself into the story. Maybe you're in a gathering, maybe something like this, and it's a packed room. There's no seats available. It's Easter Sunday, and everybody's here, right? No seats available, and then two guys walk in. And you're sitting there, and you make the kind decision to give up your seat. What a noble thing of you. You want to give up your seat. So you, you stand up to offer your seat to somebody, but then you have to choose to who you will give it to. Now, what would make you choose to give it to the rich person over the poor person? That's kind of the question that I want to get at is why would you choose the rich person? Why would I choose that? And I think the underlying motive here that I see in my life so frequently, and I'm guessing that you do as well, is that oftentimes the question that I'm asking myself is, what's in it for me? The question that I ask myself is, I wonder if this could actually pay off for me. See, I wonder if giving my seat to the rich man actually could benefit me in some way. The poor guy's got nothing to offer. He's got nothing to offer me. And like I said, James doesn't tell us this motive of the man of why he gives up his seat. But I know in my own life, I can tell you why I would. Number two, the second observation I would make is that favoritism forces you to see people only for how they can benefit you. Forces you to see people just for how they benefit you. Oftentimes, what guides our so-called service or our kindness or even our generosity to others is the expectation of reciprocation. There's our word. It's the expectation of reciprocation. Just recently, I, I had the opportunity to, to um, there was a man that came off the streets, walked to our church, didn't have anything to his name, and was going through a hard time in life, and he just said, I need some help. Can the church help me get to where I need to go into a facility or just help me you know, find a place to live, that kind of thing? And so um, I kind of walked him through this, and I remember getting some people involved from our church, and several of you helped, and we helped this man find a place to go. But at the end of it, as he's walking into the place that we had uh, taken him to, he says to me, when I get out of here, when I get better, I promise I will come back to Connection Church and I'll repay you guys for this. And I, I looked at him, I said, no, you don't have to. There is no expectation of reciprocation. This is just a gift. We just want to help. And I'm trying to make sure he knows there's not a hook on the back end of this. It's not we serve you, we're kind, we love you, so that then one day you will return the favor. But I know for my, myself, so much of my kindness or generosity, my actions toward people is actually guided by what do I think I can get in return. And I want to be careful here. We have many uh, 
godly men and women in our church who work in sales. And so you guys do the right thing. Y'all are awesome. But I think all of us have an experience with a salesperson, right, where you feel their kindness, their, their, their uh, you know, genuineness. But then you kind of just wonder, like, are they actually hooking me? Is there something on the other end of this, right? You guys feel that sometimes when you work with someone who's, and you're just like, are you just trying to sell something to me? And there's a difference between like a slimy salesperson and someone who's just genuinely, hey, I think this could benefit you and take it or leave it, but here it is, right? There's a difference. We all know that feeling of someone who's doing something for us, but there's a hook to it. There's a reason for why they're doing it. We often move toward those who we believe can somehow repay us instead of those who we know have nothing to offer in return. So I want you to hear me this morning. True servanthood, true servanthood is void of favoritism because true servanthood has no expectation of reciprocation. And this is why Jesus and the writers of the New Testament push us toward living a life that is marked by serving. Because it drives us away from asking the question, what's in it for me? And this kind of serving is the remedy for a self-absorbed life. See, we're naturally selfish individuals. We gravitate to only thinking about ourselves. So Jesus calls us to a true servanthood in order to rid us of our selfishness. Can you just for once... I feel like this is the question for me. Can you just do for someone, serve someone, without any expectation of them returning the favor or doing something for you? And here is the really cool part of this morning, is that our model for what it looks like to be a servant is our Savior. This is the gospel at its core. In Mark chapter 10, it says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. I want to read with you in Philippians chapter 2. We'll put it on the screen. One of my favorite passages of scripture, it says this in Philippians 2 verse 5. It says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a what? A servant taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus did not, and he does not, show any favoritism. You need to hear that this morning. It doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, old, young, from Statesboro, from California, Honduras, or Africa. It doesn't matter if you've made zero mistakes in your life or made too many to count. There is no favoritism in Jesus. He willingly laid down his life for all to receive him. And hear me, even those who would stumble and fall, even those who would mock him and spit in his face, even those who would take his grace for granted, even those who would require a second chance, a third chance, a 100th chance, he laid his life down knowing that you could not repay him. And now he calls you and I to do the same, to have the same mindset as Christ, humbly serve with no expectation of reciprocation. So why do we 
push or encourage serving in our church so much. And we don't apologize for it. (laughs) Why do we do it? It's not because we need people, although it's true, we do need people. We need people to teach our kids. We need people to do different things in our church. We do need, but that's not the underlining why we do it. Why? Why do we serve in our church? Why do we encourage you to serve in our church or in our community? Why do we do it? Well, it's because every time someone shows up at 6.30 in the morning to plug in their guitar and they're here for the next six hours to lead us in worship, they're giving six hours of their day to that. Every time they do that, they're serving. Every time someone shows up at 7 a.m. to make coffee for us so that we can be caffeinated while we're here in church, Every time someone puts on a vest and they stand out in the rain or they stand in the 30-degree weather or in the 100-degree weather just to help you navigate some of the chaos that is our parking lot. Every time someone does that, every time someone serves our kids in there, every time they do that and they have no expectation of reciprocation. You're not showing up to pick your kid out of the kindergarten class this morning and giving the volunteer a $20 bill, are you? No, because if you do that, then it's working. And they're not there to work. They're there to serve. There's no expectation of reciprocation. Every time someone shows up to our church and they serve like they do every single Sunday, you know what they're doing? They're being formed into the image of Jesus. More and more of them is being formed into the likeness of Christ and who he is, that he was a servant. He came and served us. And so what we do is we serve others. And when we serve, we take on his likeness. That's why. That's why. Yeah, we need people, but it's deeper than that. We care actually more about you, that you become who Jesus has called you to become, a servant. I remember early on in uh, my marriage, me and Susanna, we've been married now for like nine years, I think. Yeah, nine years. And um, early on in our marriage, we became aware of something that uh, seemed to be true of us, and then it became true of some of our friends who were young married as well and young with parents, and we just noticed it, and then eventually we, got in, we read a marriage book that actually highlighted it, and we were like, oh, this is a real thing. But we noticed that it was easy to kind of fall into this scoreboard mentality with marriage. I don't know if you've seen that as well, but it was easy for us to kind of all of a sudden start to become like we are keeping score of who's doing what. And, and it was like, hey, you know, I hate to call myself out like this, but I typically would be like, hey, you know, I cooked once this week. I even cleaned up after that, did the dishes. I did the yard. I, I ran some errands for us. I did some laundry. I'm, I'm batting pretty good this week. I'm doing pretty good. I think I'm, uh, my score is about a 10, and you're a little bit lazy this week. I didn't say that. But, like, that was kind of... You know, you're being a little lazy. I don't know. Have you cooked once? Have you cleaned once? Have you, what have you done this week? I'm killing it over here. I'm kind of like a 10. You're at a 4. I need you to kind of carry your weight a little bit more. Now, we weren't, I wasn't that rude. But if you're honest, sometimes marriage can become that, right? Like we start to keep score of each other. Here's how I'm doing. How are you doing? And I'm not saying that there's not room for, you know, sharing responsibility and communicating about when someone's overwhelmed. And all that's good things in marriage. But we start to get into this scoreboard mentality, and it completely erodes the concept and the calling, really, of serving one another. If my service to you is actually just because, well, you better return the favor, it's not really serving at all. And yet that was true 
of us and maybe it's true of you. So what about you? Where could God be leading you into true servanthood where there's no expectation of reciprocation? You see, as we stand on the brink of another year, many of us have high hopes for this year. You've got big things that you want to accomplish. I want to do big things in my career. I want to do big things in you know, finances. I want to do big things in family. I want to see big things happen in my spiritual world. I want to see big transformation. And all that is great. There's nothing wrong with big things happening. But I'm reminded that oftentimes the biggest transformations are actually found in the little things. It's the little things. I want to encourage you. Don't forsake the little things. Being patient with that kid that's making you late every day seems like a little thing. Leaving an encouraging note for your spouse in the morning seems like a little thing. Not dropping that zinger to defend your ego seems like a little thing. Volunteering one Saturday a month at the soup kitchen seems like a little thing. Committing to attend a connect group one night a week seems like a little thing. Standing at door number two back here, just saying hello to people as they walk in seems like a little thing. You see, our churches are filled with people wanting to do big things for God. But perhaps we'd be better off just doing little things for a big God. This past week, I had the privilege of attending the funeral service of someone in our church, Mr. Burt Oaks. On Tuesday, we had his uh, service here, and he just died unexpectedly a couple weeks ago. And him and his wife, Miss Debbie, and, and Nicole and Scott and their family all go here and as we sat with the family, Jordan and I and some other staff people just kind of getting to know Mr. Bird at a deeper level, it became really cool. As Jordan said, he was like a, a multi-layered onion. He just continued to peel back different things about Mr. Bird that we didn't know. He apparently, as a college student, went to seminary. Him and his wife went to seminary. Uh, he, he was apparently an amazing singer. He traveled with the Sons of Jubal, and he sang you know, solos and, and all these different things. He, he uh, served with Gideons and giving out Bibles. He did all these amazing things. But yet what struck me about Mr. Burt, maybe more so than anything else, is that he loved to serve in his church. He loved his church and he loved to serve. And it wasn't anything great. It didn't really use all those talents that he had acquired over the years or the giftings that he had. You know what he did? He showed up every other Sunday and sometimes more to stand at door number two right there. And likely, if you walked in it, Mr. Burt said good morning to you. He said, how you doing? And then he was there as you left to say, have a good day. You see, for some, standing at a door and saying good morning seems like a little thing. But sometimes the little things, like serving with no expectation of reciprocation, is actually exactly what it means to follow Jesus. And so where would God lead you to lean into serving? Maybe it is in our church. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just how is God calling you to serve your family or to serve your community, but with no expectation of reciprocation. How would he lead you to that? Let me pray for you. Father, it is your example that shows us what it means to be a servant. And so, Lord, I pray that even um, as we sit here this morning and we just ask, God, how would you lead me to serve? God, would you give clear answers to that? 
God, would you lead people to have conversations about where their life can begin to um, exhibit what it means to be a servant more? God, may we be a church, a church family that's marked by servanthood. May it be said of us that we serve each other and we serve you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.